0: Yeah, I think oftentimes we have conversations about immigrants or refugees as a binary conversation where you're either pro-security or you're pro-refugee. And I think it's a false dichotomy because you can actually be pro-security and pro-refugee.
1: Okay, well, let's get into that then. My name is Eddie Koffeltz and this is episode 014, season two of the new activists. Today, we get to spend time with Jenny Yang. She is the Vice President of Advocacy and Policy at World Relief. World Relief is an incredible organization that works to create initiatives that really come alongside the local church and transform the lives of people all around the world, widows and orphans and refugees and those in incredibly dangerous situations. Something interesting to note about this conversation is that actually about an hour before Jenny and I got on the Skype line together, President Trump signed an executive action that drastically changed the scope of the work for World Relief. And they have since had to kind of reform and scale back some of their operations because of this executive order. And so I was curious if Jenny was even in a place to talk because her world was just flipping around and you will hear that she was more than willing to talk because she cares deeply about those who have been displaced and she has great practical next steps for us in engaging with this humanitarian crisis it is a privilege to be here with you. Many of you are listening to this show for the first time as we are now a part of the Relevant Podcast Network. More on that at the end of the show, but for now, welcome. Here is Jenny Yang taking us inside the world of a refugee.
0: Yeah, and so I think when we talk about refugee settlement, it's really important to remember that Most refugees, there's a little over 20 million refugees in the world today, are never going to be resettled to a third country. So a lot of what you see in Europe or in the U.S., um, it's the very small numbers that are represented. But most refugees are actually going to stay in in refugee camps or in in urban centers in the Middle East, and Africa and Asia and other places, rather than being resettled. And so a refugee, even when they're resettled, they actually can't choose to be resettled. And so the U.S., Uh, Works with the UN and other agencies to identify some of the most vulnerable refugees, and it's at that point that we choose the ones whom we think cannot return home or locally integrate, and these are oftentimes the people whom uh, we receive here in the United States of America. Um, But uh, the Washington Post actually did a a documentary series of, of Syrian refugees that are living in some of these camps, and. When we talk about refugees, it's it's important not just to talk about the millions, but it's really important to talk about the one, because every single one of those numbers represents an individual with their own personal story. Um, and so when The Washington Post did this documentary series, they highlighted several individuals, and one actually stood out to me. Um, his name was Abdul Rahman Ahmed, and he is 104 years old. And so he said that he lived through many, many conflicts in Syria, his whole life lived in Syria was, um, Mm. was through many, many conflicts. But now after experiencing the Syrian civil war, he was forced to flee, um, to another country where he was found. Um, and he was bound to a wheelchair and he hasn't had teeth for over 30 years because his wife kissed them out with all of her kisses. And he (laughs) now is, is confined to a small refugee tent. Um, when he used to actually be a farmer in Syria, uh, doing agricultural work for uh, farming lentils and chickpeas and watermelon. And, you know, imagine being a hundred years old and being confined to a wheelchair and living your entire life in your only community, the only home that you really know, which is Syria, and then having to spend the last several years of your life stuck in a refugee camp. And that's what this individual has to go through. Um, And he's likely someone who probably won't be resettled to a third country, um, and so he has to live the rest of the years of his life um, determining whether or not he can actually go back to ever see the home that he had known his entire life. Mm. Um, several refugees that I've met when I was overseas actually still have the keys to their house because they believe that they're going to eventually be able to go back home one of these days. And so, no way. yeah. And so refugees still believe and hold on to the hope that their, belongings, their belonging is not to the country to which they fled, but ultimately to their home country. And so what's, what's so tragic, though, about the refugee crisis is that many of the refugees are actually going to be living in camps for an average 15 to 17 years. And so when we talk about refugees actually integrating or going back home, in many cases, it's not likely. And in fact, when you talk to a lot of the Syrian refugees, they say that they hold on to their keys because they thought the Syrian war was going to end in two to three years and that they were going to be able to go back home. But now that the Syrian war is entering into its sixth year, a lot of people are now questioning whether or not they're ever going to be able to go back home and what it will be like if they go back home because they know their houses are going to be rubble. There's going to be no services or economic activity for them. Um, And so that's the reality that a lot of refugees face.
1: Okay, so there is a huge political conversation happening which i guess is maybe the understatement of all time but um Mm -hmm. there is a political conversation happening about some refugees not being allowed into the u.s um even at the moment of this recording there was a new executive order that was signed um i guess re-banning all except for those from iraq um to put it in a real rough synopsis um So my guess is that you have a pretty strong argument that the U.S. should be uh, open or reasonably open to all who wish to make the U.S. home. Is First of all, am I accurate? And second of all, could you give a synopsis of that argument?
0: Sure. So there was a new executive order that President Trump signed uh, that actually changes – some things about the original executive order that he issued at the end of January. Now it's, it's interesting that he issued this new executive order because the fact that he issued it means that he recognizes there were significant problems with the first one. um, I mean, especially since the fact that it was um, pretty much litigated and um, upheld um, or stayed, I think in the ninth circuit court of appeals. So the fact that he reissued another executive order, I think pertains to the the thinking in the White House that we have a real national security crisis and that he wants to do everything he can to ensure that individuals who are coming from certain areas are are vetted to an extreme degree. Now, at belief we've served refugees and immigrants in the U.S. for over 30 years, and – Our initial concern with the first executive order was that it's placing a significant degree of burden on refugees when they're the victims of terrorism, not the perpetrators of terrorism. And we felt like the original executive order perpetuated a false narrative that refugees are people who are intending to harm our country, when in our experience, that is actually the complete opposite. If there's anyone who loves democracy and freedom— It's refugees because they're the ones who have never experienced that in their lifetimes oftentimes because they um, have lived in a dictatorship or have been persecuted because they're a Christian or um, of a minority sect in their communities. And so this is something that they fundamentally understand. And so oftentimes when they come to the United States of America— or other parts of the world where they are being resettled, they they love the freedom, the safety that this community, that their new country offers them. So I think we had concerns on a lot of levels about that. We also had concerns about the fact that Syrians were indefinitely banned from coming to the United States, um, as well as the specific pinpointing of seven different uh, countries that uh, were deemed to be of of particular concern to the United States of America. Now, the new executive order that President Trump issued um, actually um, doesn't have a preference for religious minorities. It also doesn't ban Syrians from coming into the United States. But what it does do is still concerning to world belief because it actually uh, slashes our commitment to refugees from 110,000 to 50,000. That's a 64% decrease in the number of refugees that we were supposed to be getting. Um, and it also uh, suspends the program for 120 days until the State Department and Homeland Security can get together and actually assess whether or not there can be improvements to the program. Now, both of those things are pretty significant because any time you suspend a program that's supposed to be saving lives for 120 days, it means that individuals who are in need of protection are not going to be able to get that protection. And secondly, the fact that we're uh, pretty much decreasing our commitment to refugees by more than 50% is also alarming because if you compare the number of refugees we receive to other countries in Europe and Canada and even Australia, we resettle less refugees than, than all of those countries. And so mm-hmm. we actually resettle less than half of 1% of the world's refugees. Um, and if you take the number of refugees we got last year, which was 85,000, they make up 0.0003% of our population. So Mm. it's such a small number. And I think, again, every time we perpetuate this narrative that these are individuals who are intending to harm our country when that hasn't actually borne out in reality, it's really concerning to us.
1: Okay. There's a lot out of that. The first first kind of follow-up to that I want to ask is, can you speak to the other side of the conversation? And I'm curious about... Not the people that are screaming on either side of this issue, but right in the middle. Where, what, is is there any wisdom to tightening a border? I guess I'm trying to get to what others are saying who are also smart, who would also say that actually there is, this ban is a good idea.
0: Yeah, I think oftentimes we have conversations about immigrants or refugees as a binary conversations where you're either pro-security or you're pro-refugee. And I think it's a false dichotomy because you can actually be pro-security and pro-refugee. If there's any organization or agency that wants the resettlement program for refugees to be extremely secure, it's our refugee agencies because we're the ones that are most directly in contact with the refugees once they get to the U.S. We're the ones putting refugees in contact with churches and local volunteers that help them. And so if there's any organization that wants the program to be as secure as possible. It's it's a lot of the refugee resettlement agencies. So I think that's important to state. The other thing I would say is that we want the program to be extremely secure. And so I think if the White House and Homeland Security finds that there are ways to make the program more secure, then they should definitely do that. Um, and so I think if they're able to do that, and actually implement certain things that will improve the strength of the program. Then I think, uh, you know, they should be able to do that. What I think is interesting, though, is that when um, President Obama was in office, he um, actually had um, a security threat. There was two Iraqis um, in Kentucky that were um, potentially um, thinking about doing a terrorist act, and at that time, they um, pulled all the cases out from Iraq and basically um, revamped the program and had a lot more security vetting in place at that time. Um, But what was interesting is that even though there was a direct threat at that time, the president never completely stopped the program. He actually said that we can continue to resettle refugees, but then add extra measures for Iraqis specifically because he realized that some agencies weren't coordinating um, their databases together to check some of this information. Mm. So if the administration has said that they... Are, are able to complete a vetting process and make it as, as secure as possible, then why not continue to uh, fulfill our commitment to resettling 85 or 110,000 refugees? And so why is it if you're so uh, confident in the security vetting system that we can't continue that commitment and that you have to have that commitment to 50,000 refugees? Mm. Um, it's just a way of, of feeling like the responsibility that we have to be a player in some of these discussion discussions around refugee settlement, especially when we're seeing right now the highest number of people displaced from their homes um, is really concerning to us because when we accept refugees, it's not just a humanitarian or a right thing to do. It actually helps promote our national security interests abroad.
1: Hmm. Well, this is probably as good a place as any to pause because I wanted to Take a moment and remind you or maybe tell you for the very first time that the new activist is presented by International Justice Mission. IJM is working to end slavery in our lifetime and won't stop until all are free. You know, every show I talk about IJM and we talk more about the work that we're doing and I ask you to learn more. But today I... Need you, and I I mean, I really need you to do something, and it is something different and special and critical. If you would pause for a moment, and it's only going to take you about 18 seconds, I just did it, but would you go to newactivist.is forward slash IJM and fill out this online form? What this form will do is it will actually generate a letter, and that letter will go to your elected officials on both sides of the aisle, and it will ask those elected officials to fully fund the End Modern Slavery Initiative, the EMSI. It is impossible to overstate how important the EMSI is, so I will just tell you that it is a piece of legislation that is funding a massive effort. To free slaves and ensure their recovery and to protect other people from being exploited. And it is being used to enforce laws that punish slave owners and traffickers. The EMSI is that important. So that's what we're asking our elected officials to support, and I am asking you, if you would, to go to newactivist.is forward slash IJM and ask your elected officials to support that. Thank you. Here is the second part of my conversation with Jenny Yang. Push back on me on this if I'm wrong, but there's a certain, I, I'm still thinking about as you're sharing the stories of these folks and it's, it's rattling me that they still keep their keys. Mm-hmm. And it kind of revealed in me, I think like an ethnocentrism, like, like of course, they're so happy to be in America. America's so great, like, right? It's free. But do, do you find that that's sort of a, is that just me or is that sort of a pervasive thought like, if we can just get them here, it'll all be better. Like I, I, that seems like a nuanced um, piece of this, but I'm trying to think about what what role that may play,
0: yeah. well, I think um I mean, I'm the daughter of Korean immigrants, and I was born in this country. I was born in Philly with my parents. and but my parents are from Korea. And you know anytime you talk to someone who was born in another country, they have an affinity for that culture and that community because that's what they're comfortable with and that's how they grew up and so it's 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 um it's an affinity for the the language, the food, the values that oftentimes are shaped and born by being from that country and and even when you talk to a lot of Syrians you know that they love Syria just like if we were to move to somewhere in the middle east we would probably miss a lot of things about the United States of America. I mean, so I think there is a sense of gratefulness to this country, but it doesn't mean that you forget your, your culture and your, your upbringing and the things that, that really made you who you are. Mm. And so I think, um, you know, it's important to remember that it's, it's important to validate people's experiences, even though they're from another cultural, they're from another culture, and even though they're bicultural. Um, And so I think for refugees and for immigrants or anyone who was not born in this country, it shouldn't mean that it means they're less American. I think it means that there's greater values that hold us together as a country. And it's, We're in this great experiment where there's no other country like us in the world. But part of the reason is because despite our diversity of belief, despite our diversity of of skin color or race or or ethnicity, um, that we have these values that that hold us together as a common community.
1: At IJM, we spend a lot of time wrapping our minds around the scope of slavery and kind of the the causes of slavery, like why are there so many slaves? Why are there more slaves now now than at any point in human history? And I'm curious, as you think and are likely one of the world's foremost experts on the refugee crisis, um, I know you could trace geopolitical things that happen, but I'm wondering, is there something larger happening in our world that is making this happen?
0: Yeah, so um, the UN actually um, does... uh, a state of affairs report every summer where they start to detail some of the numbers and some of the ongoing facts around displacement. And uh, one of the reports actually mentioned, there's three basic reasons why the displacement crisis is the greatest we've seen since world war II. Uh, the first being that rep- the conflicts are actually happening more frequently. And so in many areas of the world, uh, they're happening um more accelerated, I guess. So in, in more communities, there's more conflict. Um, but what they also found is that a lot of these conflicts are happening for protracted periods of time. So Syria is just one example of this, where, again, we thought that the conflict was probably going to last maybe two to three years. Um, but now it's it's extending into, um, it's extending now into its sixth year. And so, um, but the third point is that the there's no solutions that are being found to to actually have peace in some of these situations. So in Syria, it's a political situation that needs a political solution. Um, And yet the UN and, you know, the US and regional governments, Russia, they all just cannot come to agreement in terms of what needs to happen in Syria. So again, it's just becoming protracted and protracted. Um, But you see this, this situation all across the world. And even in the US, a lot of the Traffic, trafficking victims in the U.S. are actually undocumented immigrants because they know that they can exploit them because they, they won't report what's happening to them to authorities because they're going to be in fear of being deported from our country. Mm. So, th- so forced displacement and trafficking are really tied together. And oftentimes you have to address both in order to really alleviate some of the, the, the root causes of some of this injustice.
1: How would you define Activism.
0: Yeah, I think activism, I actually talk about the four A's of activism. Uh, the first A being apathy, um, the second A being awareness, the third A being action, and the fourth A being advocacy. And what I always say is that people, wherever you are on the spectrum on anything that you care about, you should always be going towards Advocacy, and so if you're apathetic about something, and you w- want to become more aware of something, um, you know, learn about the issue, read about it, and get studied up on the things that you care about. But if you're aware of something, and you know you just are stuck there, then really think about doing something action related to to get you out of your awareness. Um, thinking or mode. And so, you know, whether or not it's volunteering with a local organization or whether it's writing a letter to your congressman, um, you know, take action to actually um, build upon your awareness. But then oftentimes action is confined to, you know, serving the, the individual needs of our neighbors or even raising money and things like that. But I feel like ultimately advocacy is really, really important because we should not just care about an individual's needs um, at that level, but we should also care about the systems and structures in which the individual lives. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. had this amazing quote in a letter from the Birmingham jail in which he said, We're all called to be the Good Samaritan, but that should only be an initial act. Mm-hmm. One day when we're walking down the Jericho Road and we see one person beat up along the side of the road, and then another person beat up along the side of the road, and someone else beat up along the side of the road, we have to ask, What is wrong with the Jericho Road? So compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It requires that an edifice, which requires restructuring, uh, needs to be engaged as well. And so I think for us to look at our systems and our laws and our policies to actually work with our government to ensuring that whatever laws they consider passing um, or the administration to consider um, supporting, that those are consistent with the values that we hold, I think it's incumbent upon us that we raise our voices to speak with those who oftentimes are marginalized. And um, it's not only the right thing to do, it's a biblical thing to do, it's also the th- the thing that I think can lead to real flourishing in our, in our communities. Um, so activism, I think, really is us using the, all of the gifts that we have been given to speak up for those who are on the margins.
1: I am aware that someone is probably... Um, sitting on a subway wanting like, like hearing you talk about refugees, hearing you talk about the scope of the problem and the ability and the hope that there is and the work that um, world relief is doing and that you're involved in. And I mean, they're just like, their bell is rung and it's time for them to do something. Um, But pretty immediately it can feel like the weight and bigness of all of this can come crashing down because it is just a a monstrous conversation and how does an actual single person do anything to actually be helpful? Um, what, what do you say to that? What do you say to that person?
0: Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, you are not called to do everything, but you are called to do one thing and it's up to you to determine what that one thing is. And, you know, you have to determine that one thing based on what your giftings and your skills are. And you can't be like, you know, this, this, televangelist or, or like a superstar activist or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, if that's not how you are are gifted and if that's not how you're shaped. Um, and so if you're, for example, uh, an, a, an artist and you really like painting and drawing, um, then, you know, consider painting something that compels you about about an uh, issue of injustice or use your paintings to draw attention to an issue or sell your paintings and use that money to give to a local nonprofit organization. And there's a lot of things I think you can do as an, as an artist. Um, If you're a mom and you stay at home with your kids and you're homeschooling your kids, you know, use that opportunity to teach your kids about what's happening in the world, have a conversation with them and influence the next generation of of leaders. Um, Take them to see, you know, art exhibits or museums or concerts, that will, or watch documentaries with your kids about some areas of injustice happening around the world and have a conversation with them, shape their thinking on this. So I think moms, especially, have an incredible role to influence the next generation's thinking around issues of justice. Or if you are someone who works for a company in a business and you know that your company or business donates a percentage of its profits to, people who are on the margins in your community, then, you know, speak up to to the people making those decisions and actually see if you can donate instead of 1%, like 2% of your company's profits to something that you care about and get speakers in to talk to your company about things that you care about um, and just, you know, get read up on some of these issues. And I think it is really easy to be overwhelmed by so much of what we read in the news but i think it really lies with what you feel the most passionate about and you know whether or not it's here locally in your community or whether it's happening around the world those are all things that you know you can only decide for yourself but i do think if you start doing something small and doing something at the level that you're comfortable with and then seeing how that goes and then going on to the next thing, I think that's a good way to start. But it's really hard to start when you feel like you have 100 things you wanna do. Um, But I think it is important to start small and to start with the things that you already have in your community or in your experience or your giftings um, and then use those things to really engage on the things that, that you care about.
1: Man, what a great final word from Jenny as we launch into this second season and prepare to hear from a lot of people who are going to talk about a lot of important things. And as a whole, it could seem like there's just too much to do and what could we do, but all of us can do something. And because Jenny is leveraging her life for the sake of other people, the life of many refugees are better for it. And I would encourage you to do the same. If you would like to reach out to Jenny, first you can go to worldrelief.org, support them. And also Jenny is on Twitter at Jenny Yang WR, Jenny Yang W-R. She's on there and she is great. I want to thank The Brilliance Music. You're actually listening to their song, Brother, right now. It's beautiful. <laughs> makes me cry every time I listen to it. But they have very kindly allowed us to use their music for this second season. And so The Brilliance is scoring the new activist. How cool is that? Oh Man, I love it. To listen to more of The Brilliance, which you should go to thebrilliancemusic.com. A lot of people have asked where we have been. (laughs) And rightly so. At the end of last year, we ended the last show and said, see you soon and now it's May. Well, it was actually a really cool thing that happened that I couldn't really talk about because a lot of conversations were happening, but behind the scenes, Relevant, who you know, they have the Relevant podcast, which I get to be on. They have a great magazine and website. Anyhow, they decided to start a podcast network and they invited us, the new activists, to be on it. Of course, we were beyond honored and thrilled and said yes and said absolutely we will launch season two when the network launches in may so that's where we have been and that's where we are we are a proud part of the relevant podcast network the new activist can be found online on twitter and facebook both of them are new activist is one word new activist is and on our website newactivist.is Before we go, a quick reminder to take a few moments and go to newactivist.is forward slash IJM and reach out to your elected officials. That would be super helpful. Thank you. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of the Relevant Podcast Network and International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. See my brother. See my brother.
0: Thank you for listening to the New Activist Podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. And for more relevant podcast network shows, check out the podcast section at relevantmagazine.com.